Well, my additional greetings to you all this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will find your way to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We do not have a very long passage this morning. Don't be dismayed. That does not mean you get to lunch early. It just means it's a more full concept that we're going to be discussing. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. It is easy for us, I think, that as we come to the miracles of Christ, to understand them from kind of a wow factor. It's an impressive thing that Christ does when he works a miracle in this world. Miracles, as you well know, are not normative in this world. Miracles break the natural order. There shouldn't be a way that we look out and say, oh, it's another miracle, it's, it's more of the same that we see every day. No, you do not see bread multiplied without end every day. You do not see water turn into wine every day. You do not see people being healed from blindness or paralysis. You do not see people coming out of the grave every day. And so we would be almost assured that kind of the surprise factor of the miracles of Christ tends to fill our minds. But as we look into the word of God, there must be a deeper understanding and interaction with the miracles of Christ. Because these are not just supernatural events that break the natural order just to impress. No, they're there to teach. Like all things that Christ does, it's there to teach us the nature of the Father. To show us the nature of the Son. To display to us, to anticipate in the time of the Gospels, the the nature of the Holy Spirit. And this triune God and what he does in the midst of this world should surprise us at first, but should delight us in the end. And that's where I want us to move to. When we interact with the miracles of Christ, here we come to one of the signs of Christ. One of the more flashy ones, if you will. One that uh, is a favorite of Sunday school stories the world over and with good reason. We have Jesus walking on the water in the middle of a storm. And you would, be, you would be excused, I imagine, if your first reaction to that is, that's astounding. That's, a, that's, a, that's an unbelievable feat because nobody can do such a thing. That's not a normative thing for us to run into. If you are out in the boat in the middle of the night and all of a sudden somebody's walking across the water, what's your assumption? Well, if you lived in the first century, you would assume an apparition, a ghost, something bizarre. Maybe you would assume that there's a sandbar there, but if you're a fisherman in those waters, you know there's no such thing. Or in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, nobody that doesn't know how to handle a boat is going to be out there in the middle of all of that, let alone walking on the water. And so the wow factor is high with this miracle, but let us not miss the teaching of it. I want you to stand in honor of God as we read this uh, short passage, but important one. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, 
and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. When they were glad, uh, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Our Father, we are grateful for a passage like this that tells us a short recounting of what other gospel writers spent many, many sentences on. We thank you, Father, for its role in the Gospel of John. We thank you for its role in our lives. That the Savior to whom we have devoted our life and all of our hope and all of our trust is not just Lord of heaven, but Lord of wind and sea. We thank you, Father, for this. We pray, Father, that that change our minds, that it deepen our trust and deepen our appreciation for Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're looking at the narrative of the Gospel of John, you almost look at this story as kind of an interruption, kind of a side tale as to what's going on. Because if you look at John chapter 6 as a whole, the topic is the bread from heaven. The topic is we have the feeding of the 5,000. They all think it's all about temporal blessings. And so they just want to force him to make him king so that they get bread all the time. Jesus leaves them. He goes off to be by himself. He crosses the sea, goes to the other side. The crowd finds him over there. And he gives them the largest teaching on the nature of the bread from heaven anywhere in the scriptures. And that's the rest of chapter 6. And so all of a sudden, right in the middle of that, are these This one paragraph that tells us this story of something that Jesus did in the middle of that night, between those two days, what connection does that have? Let me ask it two different ways. Why is John putting that there, outside of the fact that it happened that night? It plays a role in the story. And secondly, why of all days, between these two teachings... Does Jesus choose to walk across the Sea of Galilee rather than to take a boat? You ever wondered that? That there was intention behind the timing of the miracles, not even what the miracles themselves were. Nobody else saw it. None of the crowd saw it. Just his disciples. The disciples got to experience the handing out of the bread. They got to experience the gathering of it together in each of their baskets, a full load of pieces and bits of bread. They got to see this miracle, but nobody in the crowd got to see it. Jesus here saving such a thing for them alone. I find it even more fascinating that by the end of the next day, all of the crowd, every single person that did not see this miracle, left Christ. And all the people who saw this miracle didn't. Have you ever noticed that? There's something that Jesus is doing here that is teaching his people and his disciples something very special about his personhood. It is not just a fancy story. It is not just uh, an expressive miracle. Jesus picks that night to interact interact with his disciples in a very unique way. And I want you to be interacted with on the same basis. 
I want you to set your mind inside that boat. I know in the narrative of John, we get kind of this overarching third-person narrator who can just talk about everything that's going on everywhere. But put yourself kind of in the second person. Put yourself as one of the disciples in that boat, interacting with that in the middle of the night, and what difference it makes for you for the day to come, and the teaching that is extremely hard to hear. Many people do not know that in the ancient world, the darkness of the deep sea was an expression of grave disorder. In fact, you see it in the first opening sentences of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. There's something there that ancient people saw that our culture doesn't really see that often. That God was coming to that which was disordered and lifeless and bringing out of it order and life. And the Spirit of God was doing so by brooding over it in the same phrasing that a chicken broods over her eggs. Bringing life out of that which did not have life. Bringing order out of that which had nothing but disorder. And when Jesus is expressing these things to his disciples, when he is walking on the water where there's storm and disorder and chaos all around, but under his feet, flat, solid, life-giving, powerful. As we learn in another story, even the wind and the waves obey him. They obey his feet and where he steps And what he does. And what do these 12 Jewish men learn from this? They're learning about who it is that they are walking with. Notice one of the more flowery parts of this story where Peter gets out of the boat and goes and walks up to Christ and then sinks because he fears the wind and the waves is completely left out of this account. It is not because John didn't know it. No, John was there that night. He saw this. And it made a difference in their life. And I want you to see it. And I want us to interact with the word of God on that level. Let us see it. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. We know from Matthew's account of this that Christ told them directly to go to that. He implored them to go to the sea, cross to the sea, and he'll meet them on the other side. Go without me. They went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Nope. If you just want the setting of this, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're coming from the eastern shore, the shore of the Gadarenes, all the way to the other side, approximately four or five miles across. The sea became rough. Excuse me. Uh, it was now dark, and the Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. This is a normal thing to happen. There were fishermen outside of this. They always fish on the Sea of Galilee. This is a common occurrence. Wind blows through there and stirs up storms really quick. It's an inland sea. It's relatively small, but big enough to have horrific waves for small boats that only hold about 20 people. And so it can be quite a terrifying place to be when one of these windstorms come through. And it's one of those things that if you're a fisherman, as we even learned from other ones, they were actually afraid of this storm. It's kind of a significant storm if fishermen, whose entire life is made inside a boat on this sea, to experience such a thing. A strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles. 
They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So would I have been. But I want you to feel being in that boat for a minute. How many of you have ever been in a boat during a storm? Is it a fun experience? You feel completely exposed to the elements, don't you? I've been in one before. I was in a boat that was struck by lightning. Not a fun experience because you realize you actually can't get lower than everything else around you. It's not a fun experience at all because there's nowhere to hide. There's nothing to do. There's nothing that you can make happen. And no, no matter how hard you pull against the oars, you can't depend on sail at this point, no matter how hard you pull against them, there's nothing you can do. You are at the mercy of nature. Doesn't that make us face something? Let's think about it on the metaphorical level. What if outside the gospel, you simply had to face the law of God straight up? No sacrifice, no salvation elsewise. It's just you and the law that doesn't bring life, but only promises it should you follow all things. What kind of hope do you have now? None. There's nothing. But you have to face it thoroughly and straight up and head on, and there's nothing you can do about it. Heaven doesn't have a complaint department and say the law is too difficult. No, the law is perfect, still is. The law is still in effect, always will be. But at the center of our hope in Christ is not based on the concept that we can get out and fix the wind and the sea. We cannot get out and fix our issue of sin and disorder and chaotic life. We cannot bring life out of non-life. And as we are told we are dead in trespasses and sins, we cannot rise life out of that. That's one of the metaphors at work here. What John is having us interact with is expressing to us just as Christ is able to walk on these waters that themselves have fear, disorder, chaos to them. So to our lives is the strength of the one we hope in. That in the midst of disorder, chaos, sin and death, we may find order, promise and life. Is that not how the creation of the world started? We've already seen it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And what was hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. And the history of the church and the revelation of God, the main role of the Holy Spirit is that of life giver. What are we equating Christ with here? But God himself, who brought from these waters once before life, order, Intention and promise, salvation even. And here he is walking on that same water. And not hovering over it, interacting with it. Feet on the water as if it's ground. For many reasons I would be terrified if I saw such a thing. One, humans don't do that. I don't care how many... How many people go out and, and, and magicians try these things? There's always a platform under the water or, 
or, or strings or wires or something carrying it about. Nobody just goes and walks on the water. It's a terrifying thing to see if somebody's pulling that off. Not only that, it would be a terrifying thing because the worldview that the disciples were working with assumed that there's a possibility that forces of darkness could be actually showing up in the physical world seeking to destroy us. And what is more terrifying than something you do not understand approaching your boat in the middle of a storm? Your boat can barely stay afloat and there that person's walking like it's just dry ground. It should also call our minds back to the crossing of the Red Sea. The greatest picture of baptism in history, where all the people of God came through the waters that were driven back by the Spirit of God and the east wind that God had sent all night to dry that ground so that where the sea was, now they can walk across because they are walking in the salvation of the Lord. And the Egyptians, when they tried the same thing, what happened? They all drowned. Because, as we learn from the book of Hebrews, They were attempting to cross the water in their own strength. Something about that night shifted the disciples' perspective of Jesus. I imagine, because I know even my own heart, that they were not necessarily against Jesus becoming king. What, what more could we hope for? Everything they've looked forward to since they were children was a Messiah that would loosen the bonds of the imposing armies that had taken control of their temple and of their city and of Mount Zion itself. And to reestablish the throne of David, would that not be a great thing? Would that not be a fulfillment of what they saw as the Messiah? The answer is yeah. It would have been. Would they be open to what the people were trying to do? I imagine they would be. I imagine they were quite concerned and quite confused about why Jesus was not doing this at this time. They were even asking the same question after uh, after the resurrection. Lord, is it at this time that you will set up your kingdom here in the earth? What does Jesus answer them? No. Still confused about it. Because we're still looking for a kingdom of this earth. One in which... Sustenance is provided because that is the very nature of our God. We understand that. But as Christ is interacting with them, he's showing them that he is not just that kind of king. That the promised one to come was not just the prophet. That the promised one to come was not just from the root of David. That he was not just of the tribe of Benjamin. That he was something far more than that. And this has been something that the church has wrestled with throughout its history. Who is this Jesus? Because if he was merely a man, then we'd be right to assume that the best thing we could assume for him is kingship. Give him the throne. We will serve him with our lives and our whole hearts. And yet he refuses it. And he refuses to give just Simple physical bread. No physical throne, no more physical bread. Instead, what are the disciples learning? There is an eternal throne from which he has gotten up. And there is an eternal bread of which he himself is. 
And the very first opening sentences of the Bible would have been on their minds as they watch him walking around. And as they reflect on it throughout their lives. And as John writes on this some 50 years later, writing back to that time when they saw him walking over the wind and the waves. And leave out the things that distract from what John is here for. No story about Peter doing this. No story about he sent them out to cross. No, very minimal things. Just to show Jesus as the one hovering over the waters, the disorder, the chaos, the storms, and the frustrations of this world. He is not merely calming the wind and the sea. He is Lord of wind and sea. What started at the crossing of the Red Sea, which was determined by a great east wind blowing that God had sent, now God calms the winds. What started as crossing over on dry ground, now we see Christ himself no longer needing dry ground, simply walking on the water. We see the culmination of so many pictures and so many aspects of God's perfect nature just in him stepping out one foot onto the water, intending for his people a life that they cannot have for their own. See here not a miracle that is flashy and incredible, though it is that, but don't stop there. See the culmination of salvation's pictures throughout God's revelation. That just as our sin is great and terrifying and powerful, God is far more great, far more terrifying, and far more powerful. It is a common thing in the American church to lessen the definition of our sin so that we can feel not so far from God. Let me say that again. It is a common thing in the American church to lessen the definition of our sin so that we do not feel the incredible distance of God from the sinner's. And it shows up when we start to blur the lines between those who are saved and those who are not. When we say that maybe if you just pretend to be a Christian for a while, here's some rules, here's the law, maybe you can make your life better, maybe Jesus can help you achieve your goals, and that's how you slowly become a Christian. Where is this in Scripture? No, no. Now, the heart of one that is not in service to Christ is nothing but a sea of deep, dark chaos, dead in trespasses and sins. Christ must make them alive. That comes before faith. It comes before salvation. It is God's miraculous work calling them from the tomb. The same for this miracle. Nobody asked for this. Nobody saw it and said, Jesus, try to do this again. Nobody intended for this to be the way of it, but Christ. He comes to the sea, and as he could well walk around it, he could also well walk on top of it. And he continues to go through it, knowing that it would terrify his disciples. I find that a marvelous aspect of his teaching. There are some things that need to scare the people that you're talking to in order for them to be unseated from what they're used to. And for these disciples, they were expecting, just like all of their countrymen, a normal human Messiah. 
And they were confused as to some of the things that were being said. They had heard the testimony of John the Baptist. They had heard some of them were disciples of John the Baptist. When they heard the Father call out of heaven that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What an astounding thing to witness. But they still had not gotten to the reality that the type of king he is is one that is not just human. The type of teacher that he is is not just human. Do not listen to him because he is right. Listen to him because he is God. Do you see the difference? Trust in him not because he's right, but because he is God. Trusting in something because they're right still puts you in judge and jury situation. No, no, no. We are... We are observers of these things. We do not come in and say, let me make sure God is okay. Let me make sure his plan of salvation is all right by me. No, no, no. We don't get to judge that. We come to Christ as servants. His word is spoken. His people that he is saving come to life. It is not by our cunning. It is not by our flowery speech. And so let me encourage you again, as we are going out into the world and we are evangelizing people, do not, through cowardice, shrink back because you think you do not have the clearest of words. God uses all of us to bring about salvation into this world. God uses all of us, to bring salvation to those whom he is calling. Even in the scriptures, it is why we suffer as we do. It is why we teach as we do. It is why we fellowship as we do, so that those whom God is saving will be saved through us. Do not forget the feeling of sitting in this boat. Verse 19 says when they had rowed three or four miles, they are in a sailboat, which means the wind, as it normally does, is coming from the west, and they are rowing against it. Rowing three or four miles against the wind might as well be ten. In another gospel account of this, they were pulling at the oars, forcing it to go to the other side, trying as best as they could. Why? Christ told them to do it. It's an unwise move. And if you're a fisherman, you know this. If that wind starts pulling up, you hightail around and go back to the other side. They were doing this in obedience to Christ. And what, but to surprise them is that Christ's not going to join them on that trip from their perspective. They're going to pull the oars three to four miles across this lake before they even realize that he's walking on the water. And not only just walking by them, he's walking right towards them. As John is expressing this, he's saying it in the same way. Jesus was walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. It is I. Not a great translation. In Greek, ego I me. I am, do not be afraid.
what are we learning about Christ? Who is he? Some earthly king that can give us just material blessings and make our lives happy? No. But the eternal creator of the universe, the eternal present I am, who to his people, though wisdom began with the fear of the Lord, he expresses, do not be afraid anymore. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately, and most people forget that there's a second miracle in this story, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So many pictures. In an attempt to follow the law of God, they were only able to make it so far. Expiring with energy, there is nothing they could do to cross the entire sea. And there Christ approaches them, climbs into the boat. And what about the journey? How much of it is completed? How much of the commands that Christ gave them were completed the moment he stepped foot into the boat? All of them. Look at that picture of salvation. As we walk through our lives and we first start to realize that there's a law of God that we are held accountable to, that there is a day on which God will judge this world and that we have jobs to do and things that he has expressed to us, jobs to do, laws to follow, things to do, obedience to fulfill, righteousness to fulfill, it is overwhelming to us. And in our best attempts, how many of us actually reach fullness in the law of God? Not a one of us. It is like us on that sea of disorder and death and chaos. And the moment Christ shows up, what's the result in the gospel? The moment Christ comes to our life, is he here to say, you know what? Here's actually a really good way to row to make it so that you can get the last few miles better. Does he say, hey, here's a great way to do it. Maybe you guys should take turns so that one of you doesn't get so tired. You eat a lot of bread. You have a lot of leftover bread. Make sure, you know, more heaven bread. And all of these things. Get all the energy you possibly can so you can pull the oars to get to the other side. You must fulfill the law in your own right. Is that what he says to them? I told you guys to cross it. You need to do it on your own steam. No. He doesn't even come in and give them good advice as to how to row. Nothing. Obedience accomplished. We will start to see this over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, where Christ is talking about the way of eternal life. And my friends, it is not something we earn and strive for. It is something that is accomplished. We get And I choose my words very carefully. We get to follow the law of God now because we know it speaks of the life that is already ours. We get to fulfill the law of God, not in our own right, but by trusting in Christ's finished work, his fulfilled law. Now we walk and we serve a law that is fulfilled. And so when Christ tells us, to endure suffering. We don't do it as a way to earn a higher rank in heaven. No, we do it because it is already fulfilled on our behalf. And what is on our account is the perfect righteousness of Christ, already fully accomplished, setting us free to delight ourselves in the Lord that he may set our desires rightly. 
They were glad to take him into the boat. They didn't even know why yet. They just were desperate for some answer. Only to find themselves immediately at the dock that they were aiming for. Friends, those of you who have not found salvation in Christ yet, do not pull at the oars all the harder as you see the waves grow darker. Have Christ into the boat. You will never save yourself. You will never save your friends or family by simply holding people to the law of God. The law kills and the gospel brings to life again. The law condemns, not because the law is bad, but because we are not capable. The law promises life, as Galatians expresses, but it does not have the ability to deliver life. The gospel brings life. The law says, do this, do this, don't do this. The gospel says, it is done. It is finished. The obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, every single thing that your life is made to do for the very glory of God and the righteousness required by you is finished in Christ. Should you trust in him? Christian, now to you. Do not follow the law of God as though it is going to make God happier with you. Many have assumed it's because God is always angry with his people. It is the exact opposite. God is happy with you in Christ. Period. He delights in your prayers. He delights when you read his word, when you fellowship with his people, not because you are earning that, but because it's a life he has worked in you. Do not serve the Lord out of mere requirement. That will exasperate you and you will give up. Serve the Lord out of a purified heart. Serve the Lord. Imitate him, as Ephesians 5.1 says, as beloved children, not as fearful slaves that may be cast off, not as those who are trying to earn their place into sonship. You cannot do that. You have been adopted, past tense. You already belong in the family of God. Because of what Christ has done on your account, Christian, you belong in heaven with Christ as much as he belongs there. That is how much his record is on our account. You belong with God. And he loves you to the deepest depths of any dark chaos that you belong in. And he has pulled us out of that. Not so that we can earn our way across that chaos, but he travels with us and brings us unquestioningly to that destination. There is no deviation, 
There's no accident and there's no way you can mess up the trip. Be assured that those who trust in Christ will surely see him. Be assured that the commands of God that are contingent on every single person are fulfilled on your behalf in Christ. Look not back on your life and say, I serve the Lord because look at all of the good things I have done. Your good things that you have done may indeed show forth that you have faith, but faith must precede them. And in order for faith to precede them, God must have risen you up from the grave, which is why, my friends, one of the chief attitudes of the Christian is gratitude. Thank you, dear Lord, as we sang this morning, for saving me, for creating a new heart in me, for bringing me to the destination of God's holy word and for having us travel next to each other in all our weaknesses. This passage, many years ago, was the first passage I ever preached on, ever. I was filling in for my pastor. This must have been 13 or 14 years ago. And I preached on this passage, and... I missed everything. Because I didn't know what sermons were yet. But I am so grateful that God's word still is preached through fallible lips even this morning. I can stand in front of this word and know that I am missing all sorts of stuff. And that God has all sorts of intentions in his word that thankfully are not dependent on my doing all my research. That one day I will look back on this sermon and feel a great deal of shame. I don't think there's ever been a sermon I've looked back on and man, I nailed everything. <laughs> I'm six verses, how hard can it be? But the depth of God's word does not stop to surprise me. Every single time, every single time I come to another passage, I'm astounded by what God is doing in it. And should I preach through the Gospel of John 13 years hence, I'm going to look back on this one and go, my goodness, I missed this and this and that. And so if that's going through your mind this morning, I'm just a few years behind you. I'll get there. But as I see it this morning, there's nothing I can see here but the fulfillment of God's gospel inside the disciples' boat and the difference that it made for them. Because as they heard one of the hardest messages in the whole of the gospel of John, right after this, the very next day when they come over to that, what is the effect that this had on them? But that they know who they're traveling with. They know what he is doing. And so they know that his words are dependable. And so what is it that they do when they hear the most difficult words? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. And 25,000 people, 5,000 households abandoned Christ. 
as an earthly king. What did the disciples say? And only one of them was able to muster up the words to say it by the end of this chapter. When Jesus looks at the crowds leaving him, what our evangelical culture would call a great failure of leadership, When Jesus sees 5,000 households being led away by their fathers, he turns and he looks at the 12 disciples and he says to them what? Are you going to leave too? They look back and forth at one another. Probably a couple of them wondering if maybe we should. And only Peter, usually with a foot-shaped mouth, says something marvelous. To whom else could we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are indeed the Son of God. That is what John wants from every single person reading this gospel. That's what he wants from you this morning. To see that there is no hope in any other name. That there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. There's no other person to welcome into your boat. There's no other righteousness. No other fulfillment of law. No other obedience. No other savior. And it is not for us to glory in it that we found the right savior. No, it is for us to glory that God is glorified in finding us and saving us. Because otherwise we are still in the boat in the midst of a storm ready to sink. But Christ brings his life-giving, wind-commanding, wave-settling feet towards our boats, climbs in, and we are with the Lord. This is how John teaches us that there's nobody else that can bring you to life. This is why you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because there's no anyone else to believe in. There's no one else to trust in. No matter how holy or how sanctified or how good you think they are, those who appear trustworthy and good and holy in their own right are those who are really, really good at hiding it from others. Christ is holy. Christ is righteous. Do not pull your gaze from him. I love the way that Matthew uses this story, mainly because I'm writing my dissertation on the Gospel of Matthew, so it comes to my mind often. Matthew includes in the the perspective of Peter when he gets out of the boat and tries to walk to Jesus When is it that he gets overwhelmed by the waves and the darkness and the chaos, but when he turns his gaze from Christ to anything else? Not just the wind and the waves, no. Away from Christ. Let us never look, not even for temporal salvation, to another. Let us instead endure all sufferings as Christians ought in service to Christ, in thanksgiving to God, knowing that the worst sufferings that have ever settled in our lives are not even close to what we deserve. Know that you are not walking in it alone. Know that your destination is sure. 
Know that the promise of Christ is never-ending. And know that so long as he is traveling with us, there is nothing that has overtaken us that is not normal. We are walking with the one whose nature is above nature. The Lord himself, Lord of wind and sea, Lord of chaotic events, Lord of calm events, Lord of heaven and earth. If he is for you, who can be against you? If he is for us, what could take away such a promise? As you are living this week, my friends, as you are praying this week, approach the throne of grace boldly, confessing your sins. Do not hide them. There's nothing to be gained in hiding your sins from God. Confess your sins. Agree with him about what you have done and what things you've desired and loved that is not him. Put your gaze back on Christ. Look not to the law to solve your sins. Look to Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord. May I extend you the promise of Scripture. When you delight in the Lord in such a manner, he fixes your heart's desires so that you will desire to do that which ends at life. And all these things, God brings life out of the parts of our, of our members and of our minds and our hearts that are still caked with death. And he brings forth desires out of us driving us ever more close to the cross, that every single thing that we desire is seen in the lens of God's holiness, met and fulfilled in Christ himself. We will not find desires elsewhere, though they crop up and our members constantly try to bring us down again to the chaotic death of this world. Set your gaze on Christ And do not let it waver, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you see the very face of God who humbly walks with his people, no matter how impossible it is for them to walk wherever they are. He will not abandon you. He will not forget you. He will not turn a deaf ear to you, no matter what you have done. You are not a greater sinner than he is a savior, I promise. Let us walk in that freedom and let us walk in Christ who will bring us to that glorious end. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for him. Not merely for physical things, though we certainly are grateful that you have made a world with food that is delicious with friends that are encouraging, with relationships that bring us delight. But Father, teach us that in Christ there is far more than this. 
food that if we eat, we will never hunger again. Water, if we drink from, we will never thirst again. Relationship that should we be in would never leave or abandon us. We thank you, Father, for the efficacy of your gospel and of your promises. We pray that it fulfill all the desires of our heart and those things that we would desire elsewise. Father, would you change our hearts to desire Christ alone? Not fame or fortune or notoriety or being seen good in others' eyes or any of these things, but Father, only, only Christ. We beg of this in his name. Amen.